0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Harry Rosenblum. My show is called Feast Your Ears. Today we're broadcasting live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. I want to thank Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible and Charleston Wine and Food Festival for having us here for the fifth year in a row. I'm super excited to sit down for my last interview of the day today with Whitney Otaka from the Greyfield Inn. Uh, it is a inn and Whitney runs the restaurant there on Cumberland Island in Georgia. Thanks for sitting down with me.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So um, I want to start out like way back in history, you grew up in California.
2: Yes, I did. In the desert. <laughs> yes, very far from fresh produce and the south.
1: <laughs> um, so tell me about growing up in California and how you ended up in South Carolina. Well, not South Carolina, we're in South Carolina now, but how you ended up in Georgia.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's it's a very interesting story. I never. I never set out to be a chef. I never set out to live in the South. I grew up in the Mojave Desert of California, the high desert there, um, without access to fresh produce, without knowledge of what fresh produce looked like when it was growing. You know, What um, kind of
1: things did you eat when you were growing up? What did I your mean, we
2: through? ate what was available at the grocery store. Yeah. You know, So there wasn't uh, visible farms, obviously, in the Mojave Desert. <laughs> and we were not in tune enough to be eating yucca every day, <laughs> nor I don't think it was for in the little town of Hesperia where I grew up. Um, but the foods we did eat, we did have access to really amazing Mexican food. The Mexican culture is very strong in Southern California and in the desert where I grew up. Um, but I grew up in a, a, a real food desert. And right. um, grew, and then I went to Berkeley for my undergraduate, which was a big change for me. It was a big... Um, it was an eye-opener sure. as far as the world, because I right. would kind of lived in an insular sort of, you know, a family that didn't travel a lot. I didn't get exposed to a lot of things. All of a sudden, I was dropped at 17 uh, in Berkeley. Right. Right, And all of a sudden, everything is like beautiful, fresh produce, and a farm-to-table before farm-to-table was farm-to-table. Right. An urban and, environment, a little yeah. bit different. and also the people I was around, the way people were talking about food, thinking about food, my whole life just sort of flipped and changed. And when I landed in Berkeley, and from there, it was the launching pad, really, for for everything. (laughs) And your first job
1: in food was in a French creperie, is that true?
2: Yeah, so I was obsessed with everything French, and I was in the French department at UC Berkeley one day. I saw an ad for uh, a waitress, had my Amelie visions for (laughs) myself. I went in, applied for a waitressing job. The owner was from Toulouse, France, and he said, I can hire you into the kitchen. And I said, great. I didn't know what I was signing up for. I can do it. <laughs> and then I fell in love with food. I fell in love with cooking, and I was good at it. I didn't mean to be, but it's just, it fit my personality type. So from there, I learned a lot of the basics of what it is to work in a kitchen. Um, and then I moved to San Diego for a little while. And from there, I moved to the south. And um and then everything changed.
1: <laughs> what what brought you all the way cross country from San Diego to the south?
2: Sure, it was actually an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> I was living in San Diego. He had lived in Athens, Georgia and said, "Hey, let's try it." And I said, "Sure, why not?" Uh, so I landed in the south in 2006. Or actually, it was 2005 and from there everything changed. My perspective on food, my understanding of how history plays into the context of the foods that we're cooking, the way community impacts it. I mean, obviously it's visible community-wise in in a place like Berkeley, but when you move to the south, there's a different obviously a very different historical influence yeah, that absolutely. is very present in everyday eating, which you can't always say in certain parts of the United States. I don't think it's as visible every day yeah. as it is in the South.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's a that's a really interesting thing to bring up is that I think in the modern timeline, people forget, right? We get on a plane, we travel cross country, we forget that the West Coast is still really new compared to the rest of the country and that the real history of this country started in places like Charleston started in places like New York where you know there have been people living there now for almost 400 years, right. and that's a lot longer than California, yeah. and so you do have that history, and and then when you talk about a place like the South where, you know, you had slaves, you had plantations, and they were growing the food for the rest of the country, and, sh- and that's where yeah. it was coming from. And
2: shaping the cuisine that would become identifiable as Southern.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, what was the, or was there a first sort of uh, classic Southern food that, like, blew your brain open as a chef?
2: You know, it was, uh, I think it was first there was steps into identifying some of the unique agricultural products that were growing. So it was like, have you ever had okra? And I was like, I have not had okra. Have you ever had collard greens? I have not had collard greens. And so field peas, it was the produce along the way that kept being like, oh, I I haven't seen that or had that. And what is it? And what does it taste like? And how do you cook it? Those were the things that kind of you know, I was really interested in, you know, there, of course there's, you know, grits and there's pimento cheese and there's, um, you know, all these classic sort of like dishes that definitely are fun to try, but the produce is what drew me in immediately. That's
1: so interesting because I feel like in the in the farm-to-table movement of the last 10 years, the West Coast is always held up as like the place with like the best farmer's markets. And yeah. you go to the Ferry Building and you get all this amazing stuff or you go to Santa Monica and like, and then... But I think it makes perfect sense that you're talking about a place where these things can grow now. I mean, you know, when I landed on Wednesday from New York, there's no nothing growing in New York at any of the farms right, right now. And the farm I went to visit yesterday, there's beautiful collard greens. Yep.
2: That's the thing is, you know, California, it's year-round availability. And that's what kind of blows it out of the water is being so special and amazing. And there's different things like certain stone fruits that do better there. But when you come here, it's, it's, it's seasonal. So you really have to cling on to those seasons. You have to learn how to preserve those seasons. And you know, have to learn how to look forward to what's in those seasons. And then we have more diversity because of our weather than a place like New York with our greens yeah. and things like that. Like we've been having, like we get down where I live, on the Georgia coast, we are close to Florida. So our whole we're semi tropical right. growing region. So we have a ton of citrus, which is great, similar to the West Coast for us. But then also by, you know, late May, we have tomatoes already. So our tomato season kicks in and southern tomatoes are like the greatest thing ever. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you made it to Athens, which still like a you know a city, yeah. college town. Yeah. How did you get to Cumberland Island because that's a whole different place entirely. So
2: to understand my my the way that I think and the way that I like um, begin to explore a place, you have to understand my love of archaeology and history. So originally I set out to be an archaeologist when I went to Berkeley. And the way that I explore is through history and understanding a place. So I founded this like PBS show about great national parks and I sort of started exploring Georgia in that way. And Cumberland Island came up as this national seashore, undeveloped, amazing. So I visited that island in 2006, 2007, something like that. Fell in love with it, but kind of put it on the back burner because it wasn't a food destination, and I was still learning who I was as a chef. Years later, I'm working for a chef, and I'm kind of in that transitional role of being a sous chef, kind of doing all the work, but wanting to explore my own ideas of what it is to be a chef. And the chef I was working for at the time, Linton Hopkins in Atlanta, he was going to Cumberland Island. And I was like, what is in Cumberland? Like, why are you cooking there? And so it just kind of like all of a sudden I had this idea like, oh, this place could be something really amazing. No one's really propelled the food there. There's this little tiny inn. It's kind of dreamy and it fits my personality to run away to this magical little island and explore the history of the cooking there. So I wrote them a letter. Sorry, I was cutting habaneros earlier. I cough occasionally. It's the habanero dust. Um, So I wrote them a letter and proposed that they hire me as their chef. And they did because I didn't realize not everybody's willing to run to a deserted island to start working immediately. (laughs) So (laughs) funny, funny me, right?
1: (laughs) So the island itself um, is, I've, I've heard it described as being about the size of Manhattan. Right. Except that there's like four dozen people that live there.
2: Oh, yeah. So basically, the only people that live there year-round as permanent residents are the employees of Greyfield Inn and then the National Park Service. We're separated by about three miles on the island, and some of our staff even lives further up the island. So the National Park Service is based on the south end of the island. We have different boats that go in, different docks we leave from. Um, So really, you only see the people you kind of live around. And then there's some, like old plots of land that are still in some family hands like the Rockefellers and some of the Carnegies and stuff like that but you never see those houses imagine nothing imagine maritime forest it's pretty much all you see and then one like dirt road that kind of runs the main vein of the island how many
1: rooms are there at the end
2: 16. Got it. Yeah. Oh, so it's small. It's super small.
1: And so when people come there, it's not like there's other restaurants they're visiting. So pretty much all the food that they eat when they stay at the inn is in the restaurant. There is right? nowhere else to eat. Yeah.
2: This is the only place. If you come to the Park Service, there's nowhere to eat. You bring your own food. But if you come to the Greyfield Inn, then we're the ones feeding you. Do
1: people from the Park Service come for dinner at the inn? No,
2: uh-uh. <laughs> no, I mean, it's pretty, like, closed off. Yeah. It's... They keep it really minimal. It's an old family home. They don't like to have too much impact on it. Sure. And then they like to give the guests sort of that experience as well. So it's really minimal as far as how many people are there. But we do have a garden, about a two-acre garden, where we grow all organic produce for the Inn. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It
1: must be great for you as a chef coming out of what I assume are sort of bigger restaurants than the Inn presents to have a space where you pretty much know how many people are eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've always worked for independent restaurants. I always say I'm more of a Wes Anderson movie than a blockbuster, <laughs> although I think these days Wes Anderson is becoming a blockbuster movie producer, maker, he is obviously. But um, but I like these kind of weird, like off the beaten path spaces. Um, I don't necessarily go for big corporate spaces. And it is really lovely to have the the knowledge of how many guests you're having for dinner. But it's still a creative process every day. We change the menu constantly. Sure.
1: And then for things that you don't grow yourself on the island, what is the sourcing process like? Because it's not like you can text your supplier at (laughs) 11 p.m. and have it show up the next day.
2: I mean, we do have some that we can do that with. So we have a boat that goes back and forth three times a day. Got it. So we have access to things landing at a mainland office and coming over to us. But... You cannot always rely on that. You have to be smarter than that because if something comes in and it's not quality, if it's not what you ordered, you never want to rely on it. So the produce drives our program. It it drives what the menu is going to be that night from the garden, the produce from the garden. And then also we do have access to some really beautiful seafood being right on the coast. So wild caught Georgia shrimp are really important to our region and to our menu. Like right now we have someone fishing um, sheep's head for us, which is a really great local fish. So we rely on those things and make sure we're running those key items every single week that we can.
1: The sheep's head dish that you cooked last night at Garden and Gun is one of the best things
2: I've eaten all year. Oh, hey, thank you. I really appreciate that. I mean, that fish is such a lovely fish. It's not very well known, but it has these teeth, so it eats clams and shrimp, and then it picks up, and crab as well, and then it picks up the sweetness of that flavor because the shrimp that we have near us grow in cordgrass, which is relative to sugarcane. So that's what imports a a sweeter flavor in our shrimp. But then when you poach that fish just the right way, I feel like it it starts to taste like crab. So anyway, I love it.
1: Sheep's head has come up quite a bit for me. Uh, There was an article I read in the New York Times this morning about names of different old neighborhoods in New York. And Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn oh, is called, called Sheepshead Bay because they used to catch lots of Sheepshead yeah. there, which they don't anymore. Oh, interesting. There aren't, they're gone. It hasn't, I, don't, I don't know if they're gone or it's just has changed. It's very interesting because I guess now it's thought of much more as a southern fish.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've seen Sheepshead, that neighborhood, the Sheepshead Bay, yeah. and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but I did see that article. I haven't read it yet, yeah. but I need to.
1: So uh, your book, The Saltwater Table, came out last year?
2: Yeah, uh, October of last year. Cool.
1: So Tell me about the – how did the book – come about?
2: Sure. Uh, It's one of those things where I knew I was going to write a cookbook eventually. It's something I wanted to do. But for me, it's not something I would just produce. Does that make sense? It's something Mm -hmm. I think I wanted to write myself as well. And so I wanted to make sure I had a clear vision of what that was. So one day I was on the boat going to Cumberland. It was a really stormy day in June, which is a bit rare for us. Well, storms aren't rare, but it was a cooler. It was very sort of mist like mystique kind of driven day and uh, I just saw what the book could be. I'd also had a lot of caffeine so that that could be what got it going but I instantly saw the five chapters that the book still has to this day Um, so it's as soon as I saw what the book was, I knew I could write it. And it's such a magical, interesting place to live. It needed to be expressed to me through its food. And again, it's a very unique region because we are a semi-tropical growing zone. So it's not your typical idea of what southern climate is. Um, we have a lot of influence coming in from Florida, which I think also is the narrative of the Caribbean coming into Florida. And so I like to call it the tropical south down there. I like to refer to it as that because low country has its own identity. Right. But I think there is a, a, a change in identity when you start hitting closer to Florida, which isn't well discussed in the narrative of food in our, in our country, really. Yeah.
1: Um, I was looking at the book earlier and it's beautiful. Um, and I really, I like that the recipes seem very approachable for the home cook.
2: Yeah, that was our goal. I, I of course wanted it to be beautiful, but I want it to be practical. And so when we tested a lot of the recipes, we took them into a home kitchen and tested them without having access to a dishwasher. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I, I don't know. It's like, I want people to make these their regular recipes. I know how much people really rely on cookbooks. To learn, and once you know, you can get solid recipes out of a book. You can keep growing with that book. Yeah. But as soon as you hit a dud recipe or something that's too complex to make at home, there's books for being challenged, of course. But I really wanted people to cook from it on a regular basis. So,
1: so I, I often when I speak with chefs, I ask them kind of like, what do they do or what do they cook when they're not at work? But you live at work, so
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. So my husband and I work together, and we've worked together since. 2006, and we often lament about the fact that we never can just take a break from cooking because when we're not at the inn, we're on an island with no food, so we're always (laughs) cooking for ourselves, but he does a lot of the cooking at home, um, which is great. But, yeah, we're constantly cooking. I mean, our go-to things at home are things like roasted chicken. We love chicken thighs. When it's hot outside, it's tomato salads and lots of roasted vegetables. I think when you start talking to chefs about how they cook at home, it's simplicity, a lot of produce, you know, like bowls of rice with roasted you know, whatever, vegetables and season on top of it. Those are so refreshing and lovely and simple and easy.
1: I mean, that style of cooking comes through in your book as
2: well. Yeah. Um, I like to eat pretty clean. I, I like to feel good. That's one of the greatest compliments I get from our guests is that they feel good after they eat the food. And we don't rely on butter and fat to drive the food. We think about sort of refreshing the idea of that Southern identity also and letting people feel good about the food they eat and letting that produce shine for what it is.
1: Do you ever forage any ingredients on the island? I saw, I think I saw a picture online of you with a really beautiful chicken of the woods mushroom.
2: Yeah. So those come in very rarely, but when they do, I actually wanted to put that in the book, but they weren't coming into season when we were shooting that chapter. We like to get those off the trees there, and I like to confit those and oh, fry wow. them like chicken. Nice, because they taste so much like chicken. They're so meaty, and if you confit them, it changes the texture oh, so much. Oh, I gotta much. try that. I it's may, I,
1: I fry really them good. and I serve them to my kids as chicken fingers of the woods.
2: Oh yeah, try <laughs> confiting them. Just olive oil, maybe like a like a clove of garlic in there. Just get it till it's nice and tender, and nice. then go ahead and like fry it up. It's amazing. Uh, it sounds, but yeah, we so have good. wild berries that grow on the island and then tons of citrus, which is really great. So,
1: right. Cause you guys are in that tropical yeah, zone. Yeah. It's awesome. So, uh, big changes are coming for you and your husband, <laughs> yeah. right? you're pregnant.
2: Yes, I am. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks.
1: Um, so, uh, yeah, that's going to be a big change, uh, for you guys, but in, at the moment before oh, well, we just
2: have a new employee, <laughs> that's how we like to think about it. this is extra hands.
1: <laughs> that's a, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, So how has pregnancy affected you in the kitchen? Because a lot of women have either food aversions or food obsessions.
2: So sadly, I have food aversions, which I've been thinking about writing about. So I was like, oh, I didn't know anything about pregnancy. I'm so naive. I was like, yeah, first trimester. I'll do it during my book tour. Sounds great. A terrible oh, idea no. for me. I'm one of those people that like I turned into a zombie the instant I became pregnant. And every single thing that I love about food just completely killed me. This I, I couldn't go into a bakery without wanting to throw up. <laughs> like the most I was in New York and people were like this is the beginning of my book tour and they're like where are you eating and I'm like oh I'm so busy I can't eat but it was like not true at all we couldn't like a bakery made me want to throw up I was able to eat at Missy's one night and I drank they have this like tangerine like virgin drink with like sparkling water I drank like five of them (laughs) it was like the only way I could survive being in a restaurant so like Citrus has been my clutch as far as like being able to handle a situation, but the smell of garlic kills me still. Like I make my husband mince all the garlic, so the residual <laughs> smell is not on my hands. Right. Um. I went through a phase of eating like a two-year-old, where I was like, in order to have a child, I guess you have to have the taste buds of a child, <laughs> and I can only have plain pasta and uh, Applegate chicken nuggets, <laughs> which is shameful for me. Shameful.
1: <laughs> when my wife was pregnant with our daughter, who was our first child, she was obsessed with Reuben sandwiches. Um, and so, yeah. if if Moxie had been a boy, his name would have been Reuben.
2: I love that. I love that. Um, my my child's name, unfortunately, would be plain pasta. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you know if you're having a boy or a girl?
2: I do, but it's a secret.
1: Cool. Good. <laughs> keep, it, keep it that way. I think that's a good idea. Um, so, you know, what kind of planning are you doing for the restaurant? I mean, for when you do have the baby?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of flexibility for us. Um, we've been with Greyfield for a long time. And then working with my husband, there's a lot of space for us to do what we need to do when we have a child. We have a great team that can handle things and kind of run things for us. So... So we'll see what the time we need for us, which is nothing I'm taking now, by the way. I'm like, oh, yeah, like four weeks before I give birth, I'll figure this whole thing out. Because also I live on an island where right. there's no access to anything. So <laughs> we're kind of like, yeah, we'll figure it out. It's going to got some time.
1: <laughs> um, can I ask and you don't have to answer this? Are you going to give birth on the island?
2: No, oh. I couldn't. No way. It's too um, if there was any situation, sure. I wouldn't actually be able to get off the right. island. <laughs> I mean, early on in my pregnancy, I was like, "Uh, is it safe to be out on this island? But it's fine. People have lived in remote places for a long time. Absolutely. Without access to hospital. But for the actual birth process, yes, I will go off the island. Got it. The horses are not going to be the ones delivering my (laughs) baby. There's wild horses on the island, if (laughs) anyone's familiar.
1: (laughs) Um, It sounds like a really cool place for a kid to grow up.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing adventure for sure. I call it Tom Sawyer's Island sometimes right. because it, to me, it reminds me of that place where you can just kind of run free and wild. So, yeah.
1: So how do people make reservations if they want to come to the inn?
2: Online, I think, is the best way to start. Um, we only, we tend not to do dinner charters anymore. It's only guests at the inn. So booking a room, staying overnight is the way to go. Um, our low season is summer, so it's a good time to book. Um, but it's also really hot, so just be aware of that. You have to be, a, you know, a lizard who loves sitting in the heat <laughs> if you're gonna go. Then, but yeah, online grayfieldin.com.
1: Do you see a lot of repeat customers?
2: We do. Yeah, we have a lot of regulars. Once they kind of fall in love with it, they keep coming back. So.
1: Um, and so, what is like when you get back there? next week, like, what's going on the menu? Like, what's fresh right now?
2: Oh, so I'm in that period where I'm like, is it spring yet? Is it spring yet? Is it spring yet? So we're still, we have beautiful, like, baby mokum carrots. I'm hoping for peas to come in. We get, uh, like, about three weeks when we have a lot of the beautiful, fresh, shelling English peas. And those out of the garden are just divine. There's nothing like them when you grow them out of your own garden. They're so sweet, you have to do nothing to them. Radishes, arugula, lettuces, I mean, all those really beautiful vegetables that shine with hardly any cooking, which are my favorite. Whereas winter, everything is like, get that turnip cooked. Got to yeah. cook that, you know, root vegetable. Get yeah. those cooked down. So that'll start inspiring the menu soon.
1: But I think, I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's incredible to me. And I feel like it's almost, it's like hard to believe that you get to be in a situation where the produce you're cooking with is so fresh. Like it couldn't possibly be any fresher. Yeah. And fresh chefs talk about it all the time, about wanting the freshest produce, but nobody gets it as fresh as you're able to because yeah. you're right there.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's the beauty to it and then there's the hard side of it where it's literally like I have access, but I also have responsibility for everything right. growing in there. And there's times when it's like, I, I mean, I have one set audience And they might be there for four days. So I cannot hammer them with tomato, 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 tomato. Or else they'll leave and be like, great, that's all I ate was tomatoes. So it's like really getting creative with how to sort of put that into your menu and utilize if you've got a bumper crop that's just like flushing the kitchen. So that's really interesting but really fun, too. It's made me a better chef, ultimately.
1: Um, And then so here at Charleston Wine and Food, you did a dinner last night at Garden and Gun. What else? What other events are you doing?
2: Tomorrow I'm doing campfires and corkscrews or corkscrews and campfires. And that's all open fire cooking. um, And that's going to be beautiful. And then I'm doing another live fire event on Sunday called Feast and Fire 2.0 on Goat Island, which is kind of like the Cumberland Island of Charleston, I guess. So kind of like undeveloped, all live fire, uh, just three chefs. It's gonna be amazing.
1: That sounds like a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, I'm really glad to be doing the live fire events. It's kind of my favorite way to cook. It changes how you're presenting your food. You have more control actually in these strange environments like this, like the food Hmm. festivals. I've tried to, (laughs) I've tried to have a fryer at an event like this and they never work. (laughs) So just give me a fire pit and I can make food happen.
1: (laughs) Um, Awesome. Anything else on the horizon for you aside from the baby and Greyfield Inn? Or just I
2: mean, working on a second book, um, I was working on that. And then my proposal, I got just really sick with the pregnancy <laughs> and put it aside until I felt inspired to write again. To actually think creatively about food, which is definitely coming back. So that'll be on the docket. You know, my husband and I constantly talk about doing our own sort of project, a small remote kind of cooking school with a small restaurant so that's something that's heavily in discussion right now for us um, especially with a child on the way which is the opposite of how most people think most people don't think I'm going to open a business while I have a baby but that suits me so (laughs) that's going to (laughs) happen and then just great events continuing to cook and being a part of the community really
1: awesome well thank you so much for sitting down uh, to talk with me today?
2: Yeah, sorry for my raspy habanero-affected voice. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: <laughs> no problem. And anybody who is lucky enough to get to eat your food either at the festival or on Cumberland Island, um, it's very special. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Harry Rosenblum. You can find my show, Feast Your Ears, at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks again to the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. Stay tuned for more from Charleston Wine and Food. Yay! This program is powered by Simplecast.